when Robert Ringer wrote a book called Looking Out for Number One, it became the bestseller in America and stayed at the top of the charts for almost a year. I wonder how well his book would have done if he had titled it Putting Others First. You know, we live in a society that says it's all about me or getting what I want. But as we saw last time, as we left off in Philippians chapter 1, uh, Paul told us that to be truly successful, it's all about working together as a team and working for an agenda that is not ours alone, but instead one that has been given to us by God. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, Roger, that sounds great for the church, but out in the real world where I live, that's not going to work. And if that's what you're thinking this morning, I want to tell you that I disagree with you. First of all, Ringer's book was a bestseller, but the year was 1977. And if you look at the top-selling books in the business world today, uh, they have a whole different direction. They've come to understand something that we've seen in Philippians chapter 1. You can look at books like Built to Last, Good to Great. They talk about how corporations succeed as they pull together as a team, as they have a common purpose and work together. Another great uh, top-selling book was called uh, Level 5 Leadership, and in it, it speaks of the corporate executive being a servant leader. Now, as you look at all the things that they've discovered in the business world, those principles come from the best-selling book of all time, which is called the Bible. And as you look at what the Bible tells us, what we've been seeing in Philippians and look now, it's, it's not things that apply even just to the corporate world. It, it applies in the world of sports as well. Here's a cover shot from Sports Illustrated. Now, you may be looking at that and saying, why is Bruce Bowen and Fabricio on the cover there? And the reason for that is because that's from June of 2007. This was a, the cover shot back in June of 2007, and you see it's titled The Quiet Dynasty, the most successful pro franchise in the last 10 years. Now, the accompanying article said this, with four championships in nine years, the Spurs have become the most successful franchise in pro sports over the last decade. Listed in second place at the time were, were the New England Patriots. Now, it said of the Patriots, their three championships came in a sport more popular with the American public. Yet even the Pats admire the Spurs, their combination of stability, humility, high character, and achievement. And you'd be saying, wait a minute, is this a sports magazine celebrating humility, collective teamwork? Jack Ramsey, who was an ESPN analyst and a longtime coach who also won a championship of his own in 1977 with the Portland Trailblazers, said this, if you're in the basketball business, the Spurs are who you want to be. Unless, of course, you're bothered by their collective sin, which is that they seem bland. Friends, which would you rather have? A bland team with four championships and now on a drive to five? Or would you rather be one of these teams that's filled with showboaters who can't set aside their own personal agendas to pull together for the sake of the team? Well, in Philippians chapter 1, we see how Paul answered that question for us. He tells us that his believers were to pull together. And now as we turn in our Bible to Philippians chapter 2, where I invite you to look with me, at verses 1 through 4 in Philippians 2, this is what we see. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete 
by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, as you look at that, you see the word if. And when we see the word if, we think of it in a conditional sense, don't we? We think as a condition, meaning if maybe this will happen if something else is true. And while that's certainly one of the meanings you can find in the scriptures, in the Greek grammar, there's something called a first-class condition. And what that means is what we're finding here. This is a first-class conditional clause. And what that simply means is this. You could scratch out the word if in your Bible, and you could write the word since. Because a first-class condition is a statement of fact. And so what we're reading here, when we look at this, what Paul is doing is he's telling us what we have as Christians, and then he's following that up with what we need to do to maintain what we have. So he begins by saying, since there is a consolation of love, maintain that same love. He says, since there is a fellowship of the Spirit, be united in Spirit. Since there is affection and compassion, be intent on one purpose. Now, when you hear this word consolation, maybe you immediately think of the consolation prize you get, one of those cheap throwaway trinkets. Have you ever been in a competition or something and, and you don't win and they say, well, here's your consolation prize and you go, oh, thanks. You know, well, that's not what this word means here. The word that we're looking at here is a combination word. It's made up of two words. One means beside and the other means to speak. And what this word literally means is someone who stands with you. So when he speaks of the consolation we have, it is one who is standing with us, one who is, who is beside us. In those times where we feel like we have no worth, what God tells us is, you were so valuable that I was willing to send my son to come and die for you. In those times where we feel like no one cares about us, what God says to us in the scriptures is, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The consolation of love speaks to the fact that as Christians, we are never left alone. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, and do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit, dwells within you? We have someone who stands with us as we go through life and the hard times. Not only do we have God in our lives, but he's given us each other, which is why in Hebrews 10.25 we're told not to forsake fellowshipping together. That is gathering together as believers in a church, as is the habit of some. He tells us to, to do this all the more as you see the day drawing near so that we can encourage one another. The word literally means to spur one another on. And so he tells us that we are not standing alone. We have someone who stands with us. First and foremost, God, and then secondly, the family of God who is around us. Now, as we talked about last time, as believers, we're to stand firm together in the faith and support each other. This is an idea he develops further here as he uses the word koinonia. It's often translated as fellowship. The word means to have in common. This word literally means united in spirit, sharing the same soul. You know, we have one of our adult Bible fellowship classes here called the koinonia class. And it's this idea of having the common belief in Christ and gathering together. It's more than just having a fellowship where you, you get together and exchange stories and drink coffee together. That's, that's a part of fellowship. But it goes to the deeper, 
and, and, and the foundation that we have as believers where we literally share the same soul, being one in Christ. And what he tells us is, as Christians, we are to act together as if we have one soul that activates us. <clears throat> now, because we're all so different, how can that happen? I think we can draw some insight from a book called The Pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer was speaking of what it means to be a believer and to follow God. And in it, he says, has it ever occurred to you that if you take 100 pianos and you all tune them to the same fork, a tuning fork, that they are then all tuned to one another? He says, they are of one accord being tuned not to each other, but to one standard to which each one must individually bow. And this is what the idea Paul is developing for us here. He says that as we gather together, as you look around you and you see the diversity of people, the difference of the individuals around you, it says because we share the same soul, the same spirit, because God is resident within us and it is God's purpose that we gather to fulfill. He says that individually we may be unique. Individually we have different gifts, but as we bring them all together, it is to accomplish a single purpose. As you think about what this means, you can um, think of a 747. Now, if you've ever gotten on a big jumbo jet, you know that a bunch of different people load up into the plane. And as that plane takes off, it goes from one destination to another, carrying everybody there. Now, as you get on that plane, I don't know if you've ever looked out the window at the wings. And if you're seated near the window, next time, well, maybe it'll scare you so you don't have to do this, but if, if you're out there, watch the tips of the wings. Because you've maybe never noticed this before, but those wingtips flex. Have you ever seen that? I've got friends in the airline industry, and they tell me on these large jets that the wingtip can move between four and six feet. And the reason for that is if those wingtips did not move, the plane would break apart. Now, up near the fuselage, you don't want any movement there. There's no wobble room there. That is firmly attached to the fuselage, and there can be no movement. And as you think of that analogy, that picture, it's, it's what we as a church are called to be like. There are things in our church that there can be no wobble room on. As we gather together as believers, there are certain non-negotiables that we say as believers. These are things at Wayside we believe in. You can take the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and look at that. It talks about the deity of Christ. It talks about the Trinity. It talks about the virgin birth of Christ. There are certain things that we don't negotiate on. We say these are non-negotiables, no wiggle room in these beliefs. But then there are other things where we have to have some flexibility in style, in preference. We have two different services. We have a blended traditional here with choir, orchestra, organ, other things. In the second service, we have more of a contemporary music. Those are styles of preference. And what we do is we say as we gather as a body of believers, we have some wiggle room on these things. There are those who are charismatic in, in their beliefs, and they, they have different gifts that they practice, tongues or other things that others of you say, I don't do that. I don't even know what we should do with that. Those are those things out here that if, if we don't have some flexibility individually, we'll break apart as a body. But there are other things we need to hold together. So as we're looking at this, the scripture tells us that as we gather together in a local church body, we need to bring the two together. Now there has to be some order. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. As Paul talks about unity here, it doesn't mean uniformity. You see, uniformity means we all look alike. 
Have you ever seen a, a, a group of soldiers wearing the same uniform, marching in formation? That's uniformity. But what he tells us here is that as believers, we, we, can, we are not so much, our goal is to be Christ-controlled. It doesn't mean we think alike, rather it's the idea of thinking together. This idea of setting aside some of our preferences in order to stay focused and move forward on the essentials. You know, cults will try to control you. They'll tell you, you have to think everything exactly and do everything a certain way. We want to be Christ-controlled, not cult-controlled. The Psalms tell us in Psalm 133.1, it says, Behold how pleasant and good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And that's what we do as believers. We come together in all of our different backgrounds and diversity of gifts, and we're unified. We share the same soul. Now, unfortunately, as people look at churches, sometimes they don't see this image. That's what we strive for here at Wayside. But sometimes what we find is more of the image of two cats that have been tied together. Now, in that case, there's, unis there's, there's a union, isn't there? But there's not unity. Have you ever seen what happens when you tie two cats together? They're going to claw each other. They're going to scratch. They're going to climb over each other. And some churches look like that, don't they? They're tied together, but there's no unity. Now, what we're told is that we are to be, uh, at the end of verse 3, he says, we are to have humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourself. Now, this is a key to being able to think together as we work at promoting Jesus Christ rather than ourselves. You see, humility is the opposite of pride. And sometimes people look at somebody who's humble and they say, well, they're weak. They let people walk all over them. And that's not the picture of true humility. If we have low self-esteem and allow people to run over us, that's not humility. Rather, humility is a strength of character where you're able to set aside your own interests, your own agenda, or even your own position as you give consideration and weight to the position of another. It's not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it's thinking of yourself less and others more. And that's what Paul is calling the body of believers in Philippi to do and what he calls us today to do. If you think of the Revolutionary War, uh, during that time, we know the history of our country, how things were bleak. And as they were preparing for a battle, there was a, a squad of soldiers that were out fortifying a position. And they were trying to lift this heavy beam into place uh, in this, this uh, fortress they were building. And there was a, a corporal that was there screaming and yelling at his men to, to get this beam in place. And at that moment, this man came walking by. And he saw this going on, and, and he looked at this man giving the orders, and he said, he said, why don't you help your men? Now, this, this soldier looks at this man who's in civilian clothes, and he goes, sir, I'm a corporal. And this man said, oh, I'm sorry, Corporal, I didn't notice that. He said, uh, let me help. And he took off his jacket and he walked over and he helped lift this beam into place. And when it was over, the, the man walked over, picked up his jacket, and he said, he said, Corporal, next time your men need some help, he said, be sure to call on me. I'll be happy to come and help. And he said, well, who are you, sir? And he said, well, I'm George Washington. And then General Washington, the commander-in-chief, walked away. As we think in terms of, of what we find here, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. 
It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is what God calls on us to do. As you look at your own life, how you think, how you act, are you more like that corporal or are you more like Christ? Are you one who is willing to humble yourself, to set aside your preference and your position in order to serve another and thus ultimately serve the greater purpose that God has for us? Jesus calls us to be those who take the place of a servant, putting others before ourselves. In Philippians 2, 2, we find another picture of what the church is to look like. Paul uses this Greek word, sumsaikos. Uh, it means one in soul. Again, this idea of being united in spirit. Now, as you look at that first part, uh, if it looks a little familiar, sumsaikos, it's because it's where we get our word symphony. Have you ever seen a symphony? It's made up of various instruments. It's made up of different musicians. And as all these different individuals and these different instruments are brought together, they're not playing the same instrument, but they are playing the same composition. And they're under the direction of one conductor who is bringing them together. And this is the picture again that we have of what the church is to look like. For us as Christians, we're to follow the same music, which is the Word of God, and we're to be under one conductor, which is Jesus Christ. We can have different gifts and roles, but if we come together under Christ, there will be beautiful harmony. Leonard, uh, Leonard Bernstein, who was a great conductor, was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? And he paused for a moment and he said, the second fiddle. What he said is, I can get plenty of first violinists. But to find someone who will play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And yet if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. As you look at your life today, friends, do you have to have the spotlight? Do you have to be the person who is in the position of prominence? The one who has the last word on everything? Or are you one who says, I'm willing to humble myself to be that second fiddle? As we saw last time in Philippians 1.27, we were told we were to be a team working together. The word was striving together. Maybe you remember this illustration, this word sunathaleo, from which we get our word athletics. This idea of pulling together as a team intent on one purpose. You know, the fastest way to have conflict in any organization is for members of that group to have different purposes for the organization. If we're all individuals, instead of playing together as a team, suddenly instead of having cooperation, we have competition. And there's a fight over resources, there's a fight over direction, and we begin pulling apart instead of pulling together. Making a choice to, to set aside our own interests isn't easy, is it? Especially when things are near and dear to our heart. You may not believe this, but there are things that I would love to see Wayside Chapel doing but I don't have the only word here. And there are times I have to set aside my desires, my heart, what I would like to see the church as a whole doing for the purpose of the greater good of the organization. And we need to learn to do that in our own lives as well. In verse 4, we're told, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Being a part of a team means giving up some freedom, 
And it may even mean a personal sacrifice for the overall good of the organization. You might remember last time I, I gave you the different illustrations from sports. And I talked about how uh, a batter in baseball will sometimes hit a sacrifice fly, knowing he's going to be called out. But he sets aside his own personal uh, statistic for the goal of advancing the runner, for the intent of the team. It's like a wide receiver or a running back in the last moments of a game as they're running a two-minute drill where he'll run out of bounds rather than trying to pick up another couple yards for his own statistics. Because he says the goal of the team and setting aside that saving that time for the ultimate goal of scoring is more important. Now, as we know, not all players will put the team first. Uh, an example of this is a man by the name of Bob Sura. He was playing basketball for Atlanta. And he was trying to get his third triple-double. Now, a triple-double in basketball is where a player gets double figures in three categories. Points scored, the assist where he passes or rebounds. And as the game was winding down, Sura had already scored 22 points. He had 11 assists, but he was still one rebound short. He only had nine rebounds. And Sura later complained in the press interview that his teammates were making all their shots. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a bad problem for a team, isn't it? You know, they're making all these points. But what it meant is he couldn't get any rebounds. And so he was given the ball, and, and as he was going for a layup, he let the ball slip. And it bounced off the backboard so he could grab his own rebound. Now, it was so obvious that in the press conference, they said to him, what happened? And he said, well, the ball slipped, and then he laughed. Now, everybody knew what happened, and, and so what he said is, hey, look, the game was essentially over. Our team had won, so what's the big deal? Now, the NBA didn't see things his way because less than 24 hours later, after Sir's bit of self-gratification, the league ruled he wouldn't be rewarded for intentionally missing the shot and thus getting the rebound. So his triple-double was removed from the books. One sports writer says, now, Sir's motives didn't seem all that sinister. He simply joined the growing list of players and coaches who have resorted to underhanded tactics in an attempt to pad individual statistics. Now, the poster child for this was a guy by the name of Ricky Davis. Some of you might remember Ricky. He played for the Cavaliers, and he took a shot at his own basket so he could get a rebound for his first triple-double. Now, the league had already headed this off because they had put a rule, a book, a rule in the books that said if you shoot at your own basket, uh, you don't get credit for a rebound. Amazing, isn't it? You have to put a rule in the books that you don't shoot at your own basket. Now, as we think amazing, what about us? How many of us have done something similar? How many of us here are guilty of doing something like this in the way we compete, not just in sports, but maybe in school, at work, or even here at church? How many times do we put our own self-interest in front of the greater good that God calls us to. As we're talking about unity, God knows this type of behavior where we put our personal agendas first will destroy unity, which is why he tells us this in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, when you see this word look, it's the Greek word skopio. 
It's where we get our English word scope, as in a telescope, a scope on a rifle, a microscope. The word is, is where we look intently and we see something with help. And, and what Paul tells us here as God is writing to us as believers, what he says through Paul is, make my joy complete. And through this whole passage, what he's giving us is the formula for how we can have joy. And as you look at this word joy, a simple way to remember what we're saying here today is to think of it as an acronym that stands for Jesus, others, and you. How do you have joy in your life? You have Jesus first. You then think of others next. And you put yourself last. Now, I know as you look at that, some of you may be going, Roger, that's, that's great, but that seems really trite. Because how does this work in the hard times in our life? When there's hard things in our life, how does this little formula work? I saw how this formula works just this weekend. Saturday, yesterday, I started out the morning at University Hospital with a, a family, the Burkholders, here in our church. And they had a, a young 20s daughter who was awaiting her third lung transplant. And she's been on a long and hard, courageous journey. And yesterday morning, life support was removed. And as the family was gathered there, and I was there with the family at her bedside, she went home to be with Jesus. And as we were there in the room, as we walked down that very dark road, the hope that the family had was Jesus. What helped them in that dark time was first and foremost Jesus. As we read scripture, as we talked about what the Bible said about their daughter, Mary Catherine, and where she would be, it was Jesus. And then it was others that were in the room, supporting one another, hugging each other, praying, crying, holding each other. And as soon as I finished with the Burkholder family, I went just one floor below in the same hospital where another family from our church, Armando Sanchez, one of our custodians, last Saturday, his 17-year-old daughter had multiple aneurysms and had a bleed out in her brain. And she's been in a coma for the last week. And our church staff, many in the body, have been surrounding this family. And the only thing that has been holding this family together through this, this very difficult week is Jesus. And the others who are surrounding them, the others who are doing tangible things like bringing food to the hospital to feed the families they've gathered, to be with them, to support them. And then on my way home from the hospital, after being with these two families, I was given word that a, a young mom in our church by the name of Crystal was in a car accident, and her six-week-old son was killed in that accident. How do you have joy in this life? How, how do you make it through? It's Jesus. You know, as I was with the father, Jody, in the hallway, and I've walked with them for years through this, this situation with their daughter, he, he said to me, Roger, I thought we would have a victory. I, I, thought, I thought we'd have victory. And I was able to share with Jody 
the victory we do have. Because 1 Corinthians 15, as it talks about ultimately what happens, it ends in that passage by saying that flesh and blood, the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, eternal life. And it ends by saying, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who has overcome and given us the victory. And so that's what I could offer to the family, all three of those families, in those most difficult times, is Jesus. And then others who can support them to be his representative with flesh on. And finally, to put ourselves last. As you look at what joy is, it's not knowing Christ and saying, this is great. What it's saying is knowing Christ and saying, he is greater than what we are facing at this moment. It's knowing the one who says in Psalm 23 that he walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't leave us there. He takes us through it to the other side where we have new life. This is the joy that Jesus offers us, even in the midst of the darkest moments of this life. And if we'll learn to live our lives putting Jesus first, others next, and then ourselves last, we can create a climate of joy, not just in the church, but also in our own lives. You know, the world tells us that by putting others first, we lose. But what God says is the opposite is true. In Mark 9.35, Jesus said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and the servant of all. Now, that seems counterintuitive according to the world, and yet you've seen it in just a very minimal, practical way. Have you ever walked up to a set of doors, like at a restaurant, and it's got those double doors, and so you're the first in the group, and you get up to the door, and what do you do? You open the door, and you stand aside, and you hold it, right? And then the next person goes through the door, and they get to the second door, and what do they do? They open it and hold it. So you were first and you became last, but then you end up becoming first as you in the end. Now, what God's telling us here today is much bigger and better than getting into the restaurant first. What he's telling us here is how we can live our lives in a way that there will be greater rewards once we get home to heaven as we accomplish his purpose. Living as God calls us to can help us, not only in that sense, but also just in avoiding the embarrassing situations here in life. Jesus told this parable in Luke chapter 14. In verses 7 through 11 of Luke 14, it says, Jesus began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you were invited by somebody to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you will proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, as we look at these principles that Jesus taught, they're not just words he spoke, it's the way he lived his entire life. Next week, when we come back to Philippians chapter uh, 2, verses 5 through 11, we're going to look at what's termed the kenosis passage, a word you're going to come to understand a little bit more of how God in heaven emptied himself and took on the form of flesh and blood, God, who was on his throne in heaven, humbled himself and became a part of the creation 
And he walked this earth with all its limitations. And he took the form of a servant, not just in washing the disciples' feet, but ultimately in taking the place of the lowest of the low criminal as he went to the cross to pay the penalty of death to save us. Jesus modeled for us all that he's telling us here. He set aside his desire for the ultimate purpose of saving mankind from our sins. He lived not as a king but as a servant and humbled himself. And after humbling himself to the lowest point, what the scriptures tell us is Jesus will be exalted to the highest place, the highest place in heaven where at the end of the world history, as this world comes to an end, it says that every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those even under the earth, as they all acknowledge that he is indeed the one and only one worthy of our praise. He will be exalted to the highest place, having humbled himself to the lowest place. Now, to those watching this with Jesus, it made no sense to see him lowered in order to be exalted. But that's because they couldn't see the whole picture of what God was doing. And for us today, it's hard sometimes as we look at things to to understand how this works as well. But I want to remind you, friends, that we don't have the whole picture. We don't see everything. Only God sees how it all comes together. Thomas Boswell wrote a book called How Life Imitates the World Series. And in it, he talks about uh, Earl Weaver. He was the former manager of the Baltimore Orioles when Reggie Jackson was playing. And Reggie Jackson was a star player. And as Reggie was playing, Weaver had a rule for everybody on the team. Nobody could steal a base unless he gave the sign. And, and Jackson was frustrated this, by this because he said, you know, I know the pitchers, I know the catchers, I know when I can get a good jump and steal a base. And there was a game where Jackson was on first base and he kept looking to the dugout and Weaver's, no, you're not going to steal. And Jackson kept wanting to. And finally he said, I'm going to show him. He had a good lead off on base and he decided to go to second and he easily beat the throw. And as he got up, he dusted off his uniform. He looked at Weaver, smiling, feeling like he had just vindicated himself. Now, after the game, the manager pulled Jackson aside, and he said, let me tell you why I didn't give you the sign to steal. He said the next batter in the box was Lee May, which was his best power hitter other than Jackson. And he said, when you stole second, you left first base open, so they intentionally walked him, and they took the bat out of his hand. Well, now I had two players on base, and I needed to try to drive in the runs. And so he took his, his reserve hitter, his designated hitter, brought him up, and, and he used him in that inning. And he said, and that left me without any strength later in the game when I really needed it. He said, the problem was, Jackson, you only saw your relationship to the pitcher and the catcher while Weaver was watching the whole game. And what happens with us sometimes is we're like that. We watch our little individual part of our world and we forget that God has the picture of the whole game. And we don't always understand how all the pieces are coming together. So it's in those moments that we have to realize we can only see so much, but God has the whole picture. So when he allows suffering in our life or when he sends a single like the one we're reading today where he says, live our lives, Jesus, others, and you, he says it's best to obey. Today God's given us the instructions he wants. And the question is, are we willing to listen and do as God asks? He says to us, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. As we end today, we're coming to the communion table. We're coming to a reminder of what Jesus did for us as he lived this, as he showed us what it means to set aside our own personal interests, to fulfill the greater good, the greater purpose of God. In a moment, you're going to hold a piece of bread representing his body and a cup representing his blood, which reminds us of Jesus coming to die for us. I want you to take those elements. I want you to hold those elements. And as you hold those, I want you to thank God for his great gift of new life. To say to him, I understand, God, that you modeled for me what you want, and I'm willing to do that with my own life. Take this time to confess any sins you might have to prepare your hearts. I want you to hold these elements as we take them together. Men, will you serve us, please?
the song we were just listening to was Our Father. And in it, we pray that prayer a lot, and it says that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the question today is, are we willing to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven? We hold in our hand a reminder of that as Jesus was in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he made very clear, God, it's my desire that this cup would pass from me. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. I'm willing to go to the cross. I'm willing to die an excruciating, painful death in order to pay the penalty of death that we all owed. So as we hold this piece of bread, it reminds us of God fulfilling not only his purpose, but giving us an example of what he's called us to do today, the body of Christ seated in remembrance of him. We hold the cup in our hand, the one that Jesus prayed would pass from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet Jesus, as God, knew that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness for sins. And so he willingly went to the cross to pay that penalty, to shed his blood, to wash away our sins. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Would you help me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. We pray that we would be those who love you enough to live our lives in a way that would put us second, that we would be those who live with you, Jesus, first in our mind, others next, and ourselves last. So help us as we go out of here today to live in a way that reflects that. And as we do, our lives will be those that are filled and will reflect the joy that we have through you. So send us out now as your examples. We pray in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.